The British people have spoken, and the answer is, we're out. Calm heads, steady hands, and a strong economic plan are critical for Australia to withstand any of these negative repercussions. We've got the best policies, only policies that we can fund, only policies our country can afford. We will not be a big spending government. Brexit. The UK's decision to leave the European Union and the turbulence that followed in financial markets has got the leaders of both major parties spruiking their skills in maintaining a stable economy. Both have also recently announced the costings of their policies. So with not long to go till polling day, economist and vice-chancellor's fellow at the University of Tasmania, Saul Eslake, unpacks the effectiveness of both campaigns, starting with the costing of the coalition's policies. The costing of the coalition's policies have the same 1.1 sort of billion reduction in the deficit outlined in PFO. They did reveal two billion in savings in a crackdown on welfare. Is this a sustainable savings method? Do you think? The governments of both persuasions, from time to time, argue that they can improve the budget bottom line by cracking down either on so-called welfare cheats or tax avoiders, and we've seen both of those on display from before the time of the most recent budget. Labor says it will crack down on tax avoidance by multinationals. The coalition more or less matched that in the most recent federal budget. From time to time, including today, the coalition have argued that they can save a few billion dollars by tighter or more targeted administration of welfare benefits, standing out cheating and rorting and the like. It's very rare that you ever get to find out whether the savings produced, either in lower welfare benefits or higher tax collections, match the claims that are made for these measures when they're announced, or even whether they exceed the costs associated with implementing the so-called crackdowns. But it is something that has become part of the norm for governments of both political persuasions to do in office and of oppositions of both political persuasions to say they'll do if they get into office. And I don't think that this is any different. Well, you're not going to eliminate the budget deficit entirely by clamping down on welfare, nor will you make major inroads into what is one of the largest and fastest growing areas of government expenditure. The coalition has planned a ceiling on tax as a percentage of GDP and it claims that it's lower than what Labor has costed in. Do we need a ceiling on tax? Has is, is tax minimisation been lost in this campaign? If you look across the performance of different Western economies, there's no compelling evidence that says that economic growth varies in line with proportions of GDP that are collected in taxes. And to avoid comparing countries with very different cultures, it's perhaps instructive to compare countries like Norway, Denmark, Sweden and Finland, where tax is in excess of 50% of GDP, with, say, Switzerland, where tax as a proportion of GDP is similar to Australia or the United States at the lower end of the spectrum of Western economies. There's no evidence at all to suggest that Switzerland has grown at a faster or slower rate than the Nordic countries, nor that per capita income or wealth is higher or lower in Switzerland than it is in the Nordic countries in a way that can be directly attributed or even indirectly attributed to the significant differences that exist between the two in terms of the taxation share of GDP. So 
in some ways, the appropriate choice of tax as a share of GDP comes down to uh, values or ideological choice about how much people want governments to spend on their behalf on services like health, education, defence, transport, law and order and welfare and the like. Economics does have something to say about the impact that different choices about the types of taxes that governments can collect may have on economic performance. There are clear evidence from the economic literature that some taxes, such as stamp duties, for example, have much more deleterious impact on economic activity than taxes such as, for example, broad-based expenditure taxes or land taxes. Turning specifically to the debate in Australia, we're talking about differences between the proportions of GDP that the two major parties propose to collect in tax of the order of one percentage point of GDP. Even if there was a strong theoretical consensus as to the difference that uh, might result, in practical terms, the difference of a percentage point isn't going to be all that important. And to another point that the coalition's using, I guess, to compare itself to Labor at the moment that's come out of the costings, the coalition is comparing its reduction in deficit to Labor's increase in deficit. We're talking $16.4 billion for Labor over four years as a sign that it's a better economic manager. Is that a fair claim? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, whether deficits are good or bad depends partly on the circumstances in which deficits are incurred and partly on the purposes for which the borrowings undertaken as a byproduct of running deficits are used. But in present circumstances where there is some risk that Australia's AAA rating could be under threat, as opposition shadow treasurer Chris Bowen himself warned after the budget, the fact that the Labor Party plans to run budget deficits of now having the coalition costings to hand maybe $17 billion over the four-year forward estimates period more than the coalition plans to run does, I think, mean that there is a somewhat greater chance that Australia could lose its AAA rating under a Labor government than under a coalition. Now, losing the AAA rating may not be the end of the world. It's unlikely, for example, that it would result in the Australian government having to pay higher interest rates on its borrowings, given the experience of other countries that have also lost their AAA credit rating. But it could have significant implications for the borrowing costs of Australia's four major banks, whose AA minus credit rating is underpinned by the AAA rating of the Australian government. And that could in turn mean that they have to pay higher interest on their wholesale financing that they raise in overseas markets. It would also perhaps be a psychological blow. So Although I don't want to overstate the margin between the coalition's bottom line and Labor's, it is nonetheless surprising that Labor has been willing to contemplate bigger deficits of this order of magnitude over the next four years. And while it may well be true that Labor will run bigger budget surpluses from year five through 11, all else being equal, inevitably people are going to regard forecasts for a period that far out with even greater scepticism than they will apply to forecasts for periods from here to 2019-20. Labor is campaigning hard against the coalition's so-called zombie savings, saying that it will affect their costings more than they're letting on. Is there any truth in that? There's a degree of truth in it, although to be fair to the coalition, since they are seeking 
a majority in both houses of parliament of this election. And Malcolm Turnbull called a double dissolution, ostensibly in the hope that doing so might increase his chances of gaining a majority in the Senate as well as in the House of Representatives. The coalition is entitled to say to the people, vote for us and here is all the things that we will do, including some things that we weren't able to do when we didn't have control of the Senate during the last parliament. If, as opinion polls are suggesting, the coalition gets back without a Senate majority, then its inability to get these so-called zombie measures through the parliament may well mean that their budget bottom line isn't as good as what they're saying before the election, but I can't really fault them for saying that if, as they're seeking, they get a majority in both houses of parliament, the zombie measures would presumably pass. Another big event that's really shaping international volatility at the moment is, of course, Brexit, coming just before the final week of the election campaign. Do you think both parties have done enough to convince voters of their abilities to manage this increasingly volatile global economy? I'm not sure that they've really sought to try all that hard to do that. There's no doubt that Brexit was unexpected by commentators and politicians here in Australia, much as it was in the United Kingdom. And there's no doubt in my mind that the international economic environment for Australia, whoever wins this election, will be more challenging. The desire... the additional element of instability in the international economic environment probably plays more to the coalition strength than it does to Labor's, and that is another reason why I think the Labor Party has taken a considerable risk in arguing that it will borrow more over the next four years than a coalition government would. Saul Leslake, Economist and Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Tasmania. I'm Jenny Henderson, Assistant Business and Economy Editor at The Conversation. And you can find more analysis of policies affecting the economy on the election page of our website. Our theme music is by Ben Sound. There's more business briefing on iTunes. You can also review the podcast while you're there. Tell us what you think. Thanks.